Oregon secondary was very good in 2023. Might be even better come 2024. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day, and your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. If you have not already, please like, comment, subscribe, rate, review, wherever you listen to or watch the show, which today is brought to you by FanDuel. Make every moment more, not less, more. Right now, new customers get 150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On to get started. So, Ducks secondary starters that could need to be replaced, but I don't necessarily agree with that notion, and a flaw in the 12-team playoff. Huh, what a shock. Anyway, uh, that's all coming up on today's show. But, Oregon secondary this past season was very good. Now, I've seen some pushback on this, and I talk with people online about how good Oregon secondary actually was this past year. Let's not make any bones about this. Oregon secondary was quite good. Well, in the Washington game, okay, that's a national championship caliber team with three NFL wide receivers. There are not a lot of secondaries in the history of college football that can slow down an offense like that. Michigan was able to. Michigan was able to. So what we've established there is Oregon secondary wasn't as good as Michigan's, and their defense wasn't as good as Michigan's. That doesn't mean it wasn't very good. There were not a lot of defenses in all college football that you would have taken over last year's unit. So from that secondary, Oregon is losing Kyrie Jackson, the NFL, Evan Williams, and Steve Stevens are out of eligibility. TriQuest Bridges went to the transfer portal, as did Damon David, who did not play a bunch. Cole Martin is gone. So there's plenty of turnover there, but Oregon's added in a bunch of names. And I think their depth, top to bottom, can be even better than it was a season ago. So this question came in from Mighty underscore Oregon, and it's why I'm talking about this on today's show. Also, it's important because Oregon will play some good offenses, most notably Ohio State, come 2024. Hey, Spencer, I know it's too early to tell how good our secondary will be this year. What are your thoughts on this matter? Will they be the same as last season or better? Go Ducks. I think at the very least, they will be at the same level. So the two transfer corners that Oregon has brought in under Dan Lanning that have come in and start right away, those two guys have been Christian Gonzalez and Kyrie Jackson that were both all-conference corners. So I look at the DBs that Oregon has brought in, which there have been several, whether you're talking about Cam Alexander from UTSA, Brandon Johnson, the most recent one from Duke, or Kobe Savage, the safety from Kansas State, I am inclined to believe, given the history of Oregon bringing in secondary transfers. Now, Demetrius Martin is no longer there as the DB's coach. He's off to Michigan State, his alma mater, to coach with Jonathan Smith, and he'll be back in Austin uh, sometime in, I believe, September, maybe early October is when the Spartans come to town. But For Oregon, the coaching staff is largely still intact. They have identified players that they feel can help them on the back end of the defense for next year. And I'm just inclined to trust that in that particular area, they have a good idea of what they're doing because their track record shows as much. So the cornerbacks going into next year, 
The depth chart is something that'll play out over the course of spring practice and will be fascinating to follow and then some. You have Sione Laulea, the number one junior college defensive back transfer coming in. You've got Cam Alexander from UTSA. He was second team All-American Conference or first or second team All-American Conference. You have Brandon Johnson coming over from Duke, who was All-ACC Honorable Mention in 2022, and has started each of the last couple of years with the Blue Devils. And Mike Elko wanted to get him down to Texas A&M, and Oregon came in was able to get him to Eugene. Those are the newcomers there in the cornerbacks room. We'll get to safeties in a moment. On the returning side of things, you've got Jaleel Florence, who missed the last part of the season with an injury, but had a really good year. More about him coming later in the show. You've got Dante Manning, who is an experienced player, and I think we all understand what Dante Manning is at this point. You've got Nico Reed, the Colorado transfer, who had to step up in a big way last year when there were injuries in the secondary. And then you have a collection of young guys that haven't found a major role yet, but could step in one next year. Guys like Dalen Austin or Roderick Pleasant or Kamari Terrell or Colin Gill or Solomon Davis. All those guys in that room, lots and lots of corners. Now, there are also a couple of true freshmen coming in at corner because of the number of bodies there who are experienced, oftentimes transfer players or multi-year starters. I can't see the true freshman being able to crack the rotation. If Obadegu, Dakota Fields, I, I just, I think that's going to be really, really challenging. Contrast that with the safeties room, however, and you have got some talent, you have got some experience, but there could be a path for a guy like Aaron Flowers to potentially, or maybe Kingston Lopa, who's a 2024 safety recruit as well, but Flowers is the more highly regarded of the two, there could be a way in which he finds himself playing a role, a Cole Martin-style role perhaps, who played a, a decent amount as a true freshman this year for the Ducks, because the safeties room at the moment has got Kobe Savage, you've got Tysheem Johnson, those were both all-conference guys last year, Tysheem of course in the pack, and we're going to the Big Ten, Kobe Savage from the Big 12, conferences are wild. That's kind of it, though. You, you've got Tyler Turner on the roster. You've got Cody DeCamera on the roster. Those guys were four-star recruits. You've got Aaron Flowers coming in. Maybe they move one of the corners to the safety position, or they use that nickel spot to play corners more often. I don't know. I, I, I can't say. No, I have a sense of what I think they would do, but I can't say for certain there. But you have a lot of the same guys as last year. You're bringing in all-conference caliber players across the board. So you lose Kyrie Jackson. Yeah, that's a loss. But I feel like when Oregon lost Christian Gonzalez, their secondary got better because of the overall amount of depth that they added to the room and the level at which they played. And certain guys like Jaleel Florence got better from year one to year two under Dan Lanning and the staff. So you lose a guy in Kyrie Jackson, who I don't think was as good as Gonzo, was certainly Oregon's best corner this past season, I don't think that automatically means there's going to be a drop-off. And I think the talent they're bringing in and the way they clearly develop players on the back end of the defense makes me believe that this can be an even better unit for 2024. And, and by the way, if they perform at the same level as they did this past season, Oregon allowed 223 passing yards a game. That led the Pac-12. It was the best passing defense in the conference. Now, in the Big Ten, you're going to have some elite defenses, but... Oregon had a great defense, and the secondary was certainly a part of that. The pass rush and the scheme, the linebackers playing better, that was all a part of it too. But I think that this secondary 
can be even better, even though they lost their best corner, because I saw a defense get better when you lost Christian Gonzalez the year prior. So that's where I stand on the secondary right now. And I'm more than a little interested to see how this plays out over the course of spring football, because I think you could have some, some serious depth chart movement here. This question came in from Drew. In my opinion, I think we need to have Taishim as an Evan Williams role and blitz a lot more. He struggled in coverage, but was a great tackler and blitzer. Have Kobe Savage play as a deep coverage safety. What are your thoughts on this, and do you agree? The way they employ their safeties in this 4-2-5 scheme will depend and has depended upon how confident they feel in one of their particular safeties to play over the top. You can run more single high if you want guys to play down in the box, or you could have a corner. They play a lot of man-to-man coverage, a lot of man-to-man coverage. And that's why I think next year, rather than having a lot of times with three safeties on the field, I think you're going to see a lot of times with three corners on the field because you do have guys that are capable tacklers at the cornerback position. And I think that for the Ducks, they they like to play a lot of man coverage and they ran a lot of cover one this past year. And Evan Williams was that guy over the top sometimes. And sometimes it was Steve Stevens. I think that is going to be Kobe Savage, the Kansas State transfer, a lot as as the lone safety if they go to a single high look. If they're going to a two-shell, I still expect Taishim Johnson to be there and drop back. I don't think he's someone who only is going to play in, in, in the box. But I'll get to more on that in just a minute. And a question about Jaleel Florence that I don't think should be raised, but has been raised, apparently. Here's a question I've got for you. Have you checked out FanDuel yet? The NFL regular season, yeah, that's all done, but the playoffs are still here. Conference championship games are coming this weekend, and there's still time to get in on the action with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get 150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's 150 bucks in bonus bets, whether you win or lose. You don't have to be right. You just got to place it down, and boom, 150 in bonus bets. The app on FanDuel is super easy to use. They've got a great interface and there are a bunch of different ways to bet, like live same game parlays. You can find bets in the new Explore tab, make a parlay in the Parlay Hub, which is the best way to find popular parlays, all that and more. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on. Make your first bet a layup. FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Alrighty then. Continuing along this thought. So Evan Williams was indeed a fantastic blitzer for Oregon this year. I mean, he was second on the team in sacks with four and a half. He applied pressures, made plays behind the line of scrimmage. His speed is what made him so dangerous. And like his brother, he's a very short tackler. So Taishim Johnson this past year, the question was about having Taishim be that sort of guy. And and make no mistake about it, Taishim was a regular blitzer for the Ducks this past season. His pass rush grade was just under 66, according to Pro Football Focus. His coverage grade was just a shade under 64, which is certainly one of the lower numbers Oregon had on the back end of that defense this past year. His run defense grade was 77.5. That's the strongest element of his game. So I look at him and I see a lot of similarities to Bennett Williams. I, I think he's got solid speed, but not like Evan Williams or a Kobe Savage, for instance, or you know, guys who were uh, really speedsters, like Kamari Terrell doesn't play a ton, but coming out of high school was known for having really, really high-end speed. So I think that for Taishim Johnson, 
he's going to play the same role. I don't think they are going to look at him and say, well, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. He already played a good amount around the line of scrimmage, and I agree. He often struggled covering down the field. I don't think he's a great matchup on wide receivers. I think he's much more suited to go up against tight ends and running backs. And, you know, against Washington, I think is where he got exploited the most because he was the guy they felt was most capable of, you know, doing various things on the field that they needed defensively. And Tysheem Johnson oftentimes had to go up against a wide receiver. Why? Because Washington ran a lot of 11 personnel, one back, one tight end, three receivers. So I think that when you go up against other teams, you won't see that quite as often because most teams don't have three receivers that they have to have on the field basically at all times. That is an uncommon occurrence. And I think that Johnson is, you know, not horrible in coverage, but it's certainly not his strength. And the PFF grade backing that up, I I think is where we should be thinking about Johnson as a player. He is someone who who can blitz. You know, he is sacked against uh, Tyler Shuck earlier in the year. I think he had a couple other pressure situations. He's a really, really good tackler. He hits hard. He, hit, he hits really, really hard. But saying he goes into the Evan Williams role as a blitzer, Oregon wants to be able, and, and any defense wants to be able, to blitz with multiple guys any guy in theory. And Oregon blitzes their DBs all the time. We saw Jaleel Florence blitz last year. We saw Kyrie Jackson blitz, Tysheem blitzed, Evan Williams blitzed. I don't think Steve Stevens did it a ton. And I wonder if Kobe Savage with, you know, the the quality of player that he is, I, I wonder if he isn't in that Stevens role where he's in coverage on every play and you're you're moving things around with the other safeties and saying, we want you in a robber position. We want you man-to-man on a back or man-to-man on a tight end rather than on a wide receiver or we want you blitzing. So I, I think he's going to be in a similar role. And Steve Stevens is a guy who you know, rarely, if ever, I I can't remember. I'm sure there were instances, but he's not someone they blitzed a lot. They blitzed Tysheem and they blitzed Evan. I think Tysheem will be in that role again. I think Savage is going to be the guy that is more rooted in coverage just because I think he's, he's got those sorts of skills and that level of ability more than some of the other safeties that, uh, that we've seen roll through over the last couple of years. So uh, I'm with you on the Savage part, but as for Tysheem Johnson, I think he's in the same role, which is not you know exclusively blitzing, because you want to be multiple with your looks. You, you want to be multiple with your looks. And, you know, sometimes when they had a, when they dialed up a corner blitz, Evan Williams was the guy that went to cover the wide receiver on the perimeter if Jaleel Florence or Kyrie Jackson or Nico Reed came off the edge. I don't know if that's the ideal situation, but I think that's why we could see a lot of like a Brandon Johnson from Duke playing in that nickel position as the fifth defensive back, or maybe it's Sione Lalea, or maybe it's Cam Alexander, or maybe it's one of the young guys. You know, we'll, we'll just kind of have to, have to wait and see, but good question there. So I wanted to talk about this because I saw this out there in the internet, duck coverage and, and, and whatnot. And far be it from me to to speak ill of somebody, but I just, I, I found this to be curious and I did not agree with the opinions that were in it. So I thought I would uh, shed some light on the matter. There was a piece over at the Autzen Zoo about three players that need to be replaced for Oregon in 2024. And I agreed with one. I did not agree with the other two. So the piece called for uh, th- the three players that need to be replaced, Bryce Betcher at linebacker, Jalil Florence at corner, 
and Ross James at punter. So I am a huge fan of Jaleel Florence. He has improved from season. I think if he stays healthy this year, he could be Oregon's best corner and be an all-conference caliber guy. You look at the way he played as a true freshman, not an easy thing to do in the secondary. He did well. He was even better this past season. He was one of Oregon's top two corners for a reason. And I don't think he's someone that has shown anything over the course of his career, but an upward trajectory. So I, I'm a huge Jaleel Florence fan. His PFF grade, I think, jumped from around 60 to well over 70. And if you're over 70, you're a, a, a quality starting caliber player. In, in the PFF world, if you're over 80, you're really good. And if you're over 90, you're probably an All-American or at least of that sort of caliber. So Florence's grade total was around like 72, 73. I think he could work that up even higher next year. If he comes back fully healthy, I'm I'm a fan of that. Now, Bryce Betcher, awesome story. You know, he popped in the spring game and was playing safety and making hits. And I remember asking in that game, man, why, why can't that guy play? I mean, goodness gracious. Well, it turns out Oregon needed him to play because there were injuries at the linebacker spot uh, to guys like Justin Jacobs. And he played and was serviceable, but a little bit small for the position, not a traditional linebacker. He's a football player and a baseball player, which is what makes him awesome. But I'm in agreement there. I don't know if you'd necessarily describe him as a starter per se, but you can also apply that label, and I'm fine with that with this, to anyone that played regular important snaps. And Betcher was certainly that sort of guy. And I think that he, you know, kind of hit a ceiling for his production last year. And I, I agree that with the linebackers Oregon's got coming in, you know, I saw Dylan Williams make a play in one of those uh, Polynesian Bowls or All-American Bowls for, for high school kids. Uh, we'll see if Braden Platt, who's Oregon's highest rated linebacker commit in the 2024 cycle, if he plays as a true freshman. But I, I think for the Ducks, you know, a, a linebacker lineup of Jeffrey Bossa, Justin Jacobs, Devin Jackson, and I mean, there are a lot of different ways the other spot could probably go, but with, with, with Boston and Jacobs as the top two guys, I feel good about Oregon at the linebacker spot. And I think Betcher was playing more because he was forced into action, not because he was the guy who just ended up uh, winning the job there. But I wanted to talk about Ross James because I, I disagree with the author of this particular piece vehemently about Ross James. And I did a little bit of digging to prove my point. So Ross James, I thought was fantastic this year. And that was a big help to Oregon's defense, his ability to flip the field, his ability to, you know, just be good. Because Oregon's punting was dead last in the Pac-12 in 2022. And shout out to Joe Lorg, the special teams coach. He made things better this past season. And Ross James was at the center of that. So they brought in Luke Dunn, the Australian as well. He had eight punts and did some nice things. He might be a little bit more of a target guy. And James has got the big leg and everything like that. I think Ross James is is, is more than fine as Oregon's punter next year. So uh, Taylor, the last name, I think Tory. Tory Taylor is uh, is his name. Yeah, Tory Taylor at Iowa, obviously won the Ray Guy Award, given to the best punter in the country. His punting average per kick was forty eight point one. James's was forty eight point four. So the leg is not a problem. The author, you know, pointed out as much like, hey, you know, the leg isn't a problem here. But what what the piece said was, well, you know, I think he could be a little bit more accurate there. He only had eleven punts down inside the twenty yard line. So on 27 punts this year, which is not a lot because Oregon's offense was really good, on 27 punts this year, 
11 of Ross James's punts were down inside the 20. That's a rate of 41%. Contrast that to Iowa's Torrey Taylor, who won the award for best punter in the country. He had 32 punts inside the 20. You might look at that and say, wow, that's a huge difference in what he punted 93 times for a rate of 34%. So James is actually more efficient in those two key metrics for a punter than the guy who won the Ray Guy Award from a season ago. And just for reference, Luke Dunn was 38%. He had three inside the 20 on eight tries. They've got different styles. I don't feel there is a change to that, that, that is needed in Oregon's punting game. I, I, I don't think that whatsoever. I am not there on, on Jaleel Florence needing to be replaced because Oregon's pass defense was very good this past year. And I think in the Pac-12 championship game, Jaleel Florence not being there hurt the Ducks defense. We talk often, uh, you know, fans do about, well, you know, it would have been a different game if Jordan Birch hadn't gotten hurt. Yeah, probably. It would have been even more different perhaps if Jaleel Florence had played. Penix was better in game two than game one. Florence played in the first game, did not play in the second. So, I, I think that Florence should absolutely be one of Oregon's starting corners next year. I think James should be the starting punter. On the Betcher front, I'll agree that that's a place where Oregon, I think, can upgrade and get more production. And I like the linebacker room overall. So this question came in, and it just made me smile. Just made me smile. Mm-mm-mm. So every dayers out there are aware at this point, that I am an, uh, an opponent of the 12-team playoff. I am not a fan. Most people are. I'm not a fan. Even though it helps Oregon, I fully and freely admit there are positive elements, there are things I will enjoy, and it helps Oregon. That said, those things, despite my passionate fandom for the Ducks, are outweighed by what you are losing from the greatest sport on planet Earth, that's college football, which I talk about all the time, of course, over Unlocked on College Football. Go check it out if you have not already on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. So this question came in, maybe just, you know, put one of those grins like ear to ear, like, hmm, somebody gets it. Spencer, question, am I getting this right? Because it's such a bad, awful, terrible idea that it wasn't able to sink in before being so incredibly ludicrous. But in the 12-team system, are we really deciding the teams who get buys are whoever is winning the conference championships rather than that being on merit and the top four CFP ranking system? For example, let's say a team goes eight and four, but still manages to win the big 12. They are still going to get a buy and essentially automatically be ranked quote unquote number four in the sense of not having to play until the second week of the playoffs and playing the winner of the number five and number 12, because if that's a system, that sucks. Oh, my man. Mm. Hitting all the right notes right there. So the college football playoff system is going to 12 teams in 2024. It'll be 12 teams in 2025. And then the contract, both in broadcasting and structure, is actually to be renegotiated for 2026 because there isn't currently a mechanism in place to have a playoff structure there. That's all fascinating to follow, to say the least. And this is one of the reasons why. So one thing that I've lamented many times when talking about the playoff, despite the benefits that it has, is that college football should not try to become the NFL. You can't out NFL the NFL. You have a unique product that airs on a different day of the week, that feels different, that's played differently, that is different in terms of its relationship between the sport and its fans. 
and trying to become the NFL, though there are areas like scheduling, for instance, that are worthy to try and emulate to improve the sport, trying to just be like the NFL all the time is not in the best interests of college football. And so if you look at the way this 12-team playoff is going to be set up, the question asker here, Ram Spencer 5492, is absolutely correct. It sucks because this could absolutely happen. You could have a, a situation in which the SEC puts two teams in the championship in its conference championship game that are, let's say, one's twelve and zero. Let's let, let's just say LSU's twelve and zero and Georgia's twelve and zero, and you know they don't play each other. I don't even I don't think they play each other next year. Let's say they're both in it and they beat a, an eleven and one Ole Miss or Alabama team that doesn't get to play for the conference championship. That 11-1 Ole Miss team in this hypothetical is incapable of getting a top four buy because you have to be a conference champion in order to get one of the top four buys. Whereas a team in the Big 12 could go 9-3, and three, and the Big 12 is the worst of the Power Four conferences, by the way. A Big 12 team could go 9-3 and three with no quality non-conference wins, and then they could make it to their conference championship game, having lost to three league opponents, potentially. They could go win that game, be 10-3, and three, and then guess what? They'd get into one of the four buy spots, in all likelihood, because the buys are reserved for conference champions. Now, currently, the structure is that it'll be six conference champions and six at-large spots. That will change eventually, has not officially been done yet, but should change for 2024, to be the five highest ranked conference champions and seven at-large spots given the collapse of the Pac-12. So if you have conference champions that are from the power leagues, they're going to be the highest ranked conference champions. And yes, a three or even a four lost team could absolutely do it. Now, is that particularly likely? No, this year it wouldn't have been the case. This year, the 12-team playoff, you would have had Michigan getting a bye, Washington getting a bye, Texas getting a bye, and Alabama getting a bye. And there would be no objections. I don't think anyone would have a problem with that. And Georgia, by way of losing to Alabama, would have had to play an extra game, which I'm fine with. But in this hypothetical, if an 8-4 and 9-3 team pulls it off, which, by the way, let's think back to, I don't know, 2021, Pac-12, Utah won that championship with three regular season losses. They had a loss to San Diego State in there. San Diego State was a good team. They're still out of the Mountain West. And Utah, under a 12-team playoff in 2021, by lieu of being one of the highest-ranked conference champions, given the caliber of schedule they play compared to other conference champions like the Mountain West or the American, for instance, they would be into, in all likelihood, the top four. Now, maybe they wouldn't have gotten the bye. Maybe they wouldn't have, but we're in a power four era. The bias, rightfully, is going to be granted to teams that play in a power league. And so if you're a conference champion out of a power league, you are going to dwarf this, the caliber of schedule that a Mountain West or American Conference champion or a Conference USA champion can put together. I mean, look at the battle to play Oregon in the Fiesta Bowl this past year. Liberty was undefeated. They were in Conference USA, though. What were they ranked? 23rd? SMU could have been an option. 11-2 and two out of the American Conference. They went and lost their bowl game to 7-6 and six Boston College. But 
this is the wacky structure that we've set up and automatic bids are an absolutely terrible idea. They're a terrible idea because not every conference is created equal. They're all crafted differently and they're not always as good every year. The Pac-12 this year is better than it has been about a decade. Well, the 2018 Pac-12 regular season shouldn't be treated the same as the 2023 Pac-12 regular season because you don't have as many good teams in it. And so it's a completely demented structure. It is completely insane to me that you have those auto bids, but going back to the NFL, that's what they do down there. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers hosted the Philadelphia Eagles. I know the Eagles sucked down the stretch and ended one and seven and whatnot. The Eagles still won two more regular season games than the Bucs, but they had to go on the road because the Bucs were in one of, quite literally, the worst divisions in recent memory in the NFL. It was a horrible, horrible division. But because the Bucs won the division and they were lucky like that, they were then granted the opportunity at 9-8 and eight to host a playoff game. I don't think that's right. And I don't believe the auto bids are a, are a sound way to determine who the best and most deserving teams are in college football. Never has been, never will be. And I don't think the buys should be determined based on a conference championship. I think they should adjudicate it the way they currently situate the four teams into the playoff every year. The committee should sit down and say, okay, who are the best slash most deserving teams to get into here? And again, this situation might not even rise up because, like I said about this year, it it would have been Michigan, it would have been Washington, it would have been Texas, it would have been Alabama. That would have been fine. But there are other seasons in college football in which there's a conference champion that's not as good or doesn't have as good of a record. And yes, you could have a 10-3 and Big 12 or ACC champion that gets a first round bye, whereas an 11 and 1 SEC or Big 10 team that went through a gauntlet has to play an extra game. It's pretty messed up. I'm all for valuing the conference championships when evaluating resumes, not for automatic births. So that's where I stand on that. I love that that question came in because, as everydayers know, I'll take any opportunity I can get to rail against the 12-team playoff. Appreciate everyone listening. I'll see you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and go Ducks.